thing A, thing B, and then thing C, which is being alone and dying alone. <laughs> Dude, have you ever watched any Darren Brown stuff? Yeah, Darren Brown's awesome. I fucking love that guy. Yeah, he's amazing. What do you, what do you, uh, you should maybe say a bit to, for the audience about who he is. Oh, he's, um, he has a specific title, I think, that he uses, but he's basically an illusionist, right? Yeah. Or a mentalist. Um, that whole world of hypnosis has always been like fascinating to me, but I've never really like dived into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I know people who, have either been hypnotized or like seen other people hypnotized. So yeah, like yeah. I know it's like, a real it's, thing. It's a real thing, yeah, for sure. It's a real um, thing. And so anyway, I just ran across Darren Brown, who was like very famous. I don't know. I, yeah. I think I'd heard his name before, but never really. So he has a bunch of amazing um uh Netflix specials. He's like a UK comedian slash magician slash illusionist, but he does a lot of like trippy mental uh things. Like one uh one like uh magic trick he does is he just randomly chooses a person from the audience brings them up on stage and then makes them eat a light bulb. <laughs> like just, <laughs> just fucking crushes up a light bulb and then makes them eat it. And I guess there's like no illusion there. He just makes a person he just fucking eat a light bulb. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he just does this kind of stuff. And uh, I guess we ha- I haven't actually followed up with the people who have eaten light bulbs. Maybe they're all <laughs> yeah. maybe they're all dead now. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. or maybe, uh, maybe they're just a lot brighter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, no but, stopping this man today. He's yeah. on He's on fire. <laughs> Sorry, it's just a bit of a light bulb moment. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but anyway. he, uh, so I, yeah, I was watching a video where he just went on the London tube and he'll just make people within a couple seconds forget what stop they're getting off at. <laughs> he'll like ask them what they're doing. He'll ask them like where they're getting off and what they're yeah. doing. Yeah. And then he'll be like, oh, it's so weird that sometimes you kind of forget what stop you're getting off mm-hmm. at. And he'll like say a couple sentences and then he's like, so what stop are you getting off at? Yeah. And yeah. he'll just completely forget. And yeah. it's yeah. incredible. And what I like about him is his videos actually show when he fails. So yeah. it's not yeah. like a hundred percent that it works. Right. And I think that's like, that is the case with hypnosis. Like if you talk, yeah. talk to hypnotists, it doesn't always work on people. And so he'll show the failure cases, which may sort of gives it like, it lends it more credibility in some yeah. sense. Cause well, you can tell he's not trying to like fuck with you. He's just generally kind of showing like, how much you can do with people's minds, how much you can mess with them. But it watching the videos just blows my mind. Like, I, yeah. like I'm like, this is, shit is magic, dude. Like, Yeah, well, it's, it's really cool because he's basically, he's doing magic with like uh, defects in human psychology. Um, yeah. And so the reason why hypnosis is totally a real thing, and I was like very skeptical of it at the beginning, and then I did, did some investigations. But, um, but it's not the case that if you um, go up to some random person on the street, you can just hypnotize them. Um, it is the case that if you have an audience of like a hundred people, you can mm-hmm. ask certain questions to weed out the small percentage of the hundred who are hypnotizable. And, Interesting. Um, Interesting. And hypnosis is um, basically just what we all do already, which is we have various degrees of like suggestibility. So right. if you say like uh, Ben, can you pass me a glass of water? Like, of course, you're just going to pass it without thinking. But if I say right. Ben, can you? Um, go outside and uh, strip naked and run around screaming. You're not going to do that. Well, but you can find people who could basically be slowly conditioned into getting into a state of greater and greater suggestibility. And mm-hmm. um, once they're in this state, um, they'll do things that uh, they wouldn't do if they weren't kind of like conditioned to, to get there. But there's a limit. Sure. Like, um, like if you take some people up on stage and then you say, okay, so for this act, I'm going to ask 
uh, John to just, let's use an extreme example, sexually assault the person to his left, he's going to be like, he's going to snap out of it and say, no, absolutely, absolutely not. But if you like slowly uh, increase the questions and get a bit of peer pressure going and stuff, you can definitely make people like run around pretending like they're a chicken or um, like bark like a dog and, and that kind of thing. The line is somewhere between eating a light bulb and sexually molesting yeah, your yeah, neighbor. Yeah, so. yeah. So you can't just ask anyone to do anything instantly because if it's too like outside of what they're willing to do, then they'll, mm-hmm. they'll just snap out of it. But um, but he had one really interesting episode because he um, he does these specials, but he also has like a like YouTube video mm-hmm. shorts where he wanted to find like the most hypnotizable person um and actually uh see if he could hypnotize them to assassinate somebody and so he gave them like a gun that didn't have a bullet in it but they thought they had a bullet in it and um and gradually over the course of like uh days and days and weeks and weeks he would like get them to do slightly more intense things slightly more intense things so it's very much like a milgram style yeah um, thing he actually uh, re-ran the milgram experiments oh did he, he, did he? yeah he tried yeah. to replicate them and like did yeah people and they people they, fall for it it's incredible yeah, yeah. yeah not not everyone but yeah people do, so, yeah. so that's what the big like um realization for me was is it's not that anyone can be hypnotized by anyone it's that mm. in a crowd of people you will um uh, be able to find those who are more like i'm just going to go along with a crowd and then you can uh, kind of ask certain questions and exploit certain traits to get them into this this uh, state of mind um but it's interesting like he uh to find the person who was like the most suggestible um guy he ran all these different kinds of experiments that you like read about in psychology i don't know if he did this exact one he might have done a different one but um you tell a candidate that you have a job interview and you put them in a waiting room and they're in a waiting room with like 15 other people and the 15 other people are all actors Mm. um and so in this waiting room what happens is there's a bell that rings every like three or four minutes and every time the bell rings the 14 people all stand up and just keep doing what they're doing and then the bell rings again like three minutes later and everybody sits down and then the question is like can you get this person who's not an actor to start standing up and sitting down and uh and so he'll do this with like a number of people and a number of people will just be like what the hell are these guys doing i'm not gonna stand up and sit down but then occasionally he'll get one person who just starts going along with it and just starts standing up with the bell and just sitting down with the bell and standing up with the bell. And, um, and then you just keep, and then you put them through, through the next round. And then the next round is, is maybe again, I'm, I'm getting the details uh, slightly wrong is maybe the psychology experiment where everyone's like taking a test. Um, and the, everyone except for one is right. as, as an actor. And then the test room starts filling up a smoke. And then right. the question yeah. is like, but uh, no one reacts, yeah, but yeah. no one reacts. And then, so they'll do this and then one person will react. And so they'll realize, okay, this person's not going to be hypnotizable. But then if right. they have this one person who just like continuously goes along with like this poor person must be the most conformist, <laughs> like, like just not think poor for bastard. themselves at, at all. Oh, but, uh, but so, so, so much of hypnosis is just this selection game, like find the person that's going to go along which is why every hypnosis event, like if you go see someone who does this like uh, live on stage, typically it's it's done with a group, right? So you'll never have like, uh, I, the hypnotist, is going to hypnotize this person. They'll take like 20 people up, they'll start asking yeah. questions, and then about like and half of them will go down, sit down. Right? Yeah, and then yeah, exactly. so they, they filter it and then they find the people who um, who are going to be suggestible. But like the other reason why you know it's a real thing is, is like for m- all of these psychology things, like they work because it's something that we all do naturally anyways, right? So everyone's a little bit foremost, everyone's a little bit suggestible, sure. and that's yeah. how you get like things like uh, accents, right? Where, um, like I had a friend who uh, went to Britain for like six months, and or Australia, not Britain, Australia for like six months and came back, and she had like a bit of an Australian accent, and like mm-hmm. all of the people in the, the restaurant that we were working for were like making fun of her because we thought, or they thought that she was putting on this accent. 
Um, But later in life, I realized, no, she wasn't putting on the accent. This is just how accents are formed. Like you spend enough time in another culture, like you just kind of subtly start talking like the people around you. And like, I have some Southern friends and uh, when I spend enough time with them, I kind of start saying y'all a little bit more. And I kind of just start having a bit more of a Southern twang. And it's like, if you were to say, Vaden, why are you talking in a Southern accent? I'd be like, oh yeah, no, you're right. I'm I'm just kind of messing around and kind of snap out of it a little bit. But, uh, but if it's not pointed out to me, it just is kind of this unconscious thing that I'm kind of just subtly going along with because everyone is, is acting that way. And like this is how cultures form. And so everyone just kind of does this a little bit. Right. Uh, but some people do it to greater extents and some people do it to lesser extents. And so, uh, so hypnosis, or hypno, hypnosis is all about just trying to find and exploit that uh, characteristic in, in human uh, behavior. How does loss of memory fit into this picture, though? Because my understanding is of most people when they're hypnotized won't actually remember being hypnotized after the fact. And so that's a great question. I don't know. Um, like everything you've said is sort of consistent with them just being suggestible and being like, yeah, I, I want to do this with my own volition, like my own free will. I want to go run outside and run around outside and take my clothes off. But it seems like there is a big memory factor. Yeah. The thing um, with memory is um, it's hard to say if people actually don't have memory or if they're just embarrassed enough about what they did that they say that they don't remember it because it's an easy way to just get like carte blanche, um, like uh, I'm not responsible for anything that I've just done over the last two hours kind of thing. Mm. And so it's maybe possible that there's no recall, no memory. Uh, maybe that happens for, for some people if they're put in like extreme circumstances. Um, but it's also possible that people are just like not lying, but realizing that maybe they've done a lot of embarrassing things up there and it's just like, they don't want to admit that they were hypnotized because it's kind of embarrassing. And so they're just going to kind of say, yeah, I don't really remember too much about what, uh, what happened. Um, hmm. and, and I, I, I simply don't know. So I haven't studied that component of hypnosis. Like it'd be interesting if a listener or whatever could, uh, could write in or comment in about, um, if all hypnosis comes yeah. with memory, memory loss. Cause I was under the impression that that's not necessarily the, the case. I imagine it's more like, yeah, I was just in this weird, like fugue state. Like I remember doing these things, but it was also like, I wasn't totally myself and uh and it wasn't until they like asked me to snap out of it that I came out of this little trance that I was in. Like right. I imagine it comes with like a like a psychological, like altered state for sure, because mm-hmm. you're you're ex- conditioning people in such an extreme way that they are in this extremely suggestible um state of right. mind that maybe um upon reflection just has a different character, more like a dream dream character to it. I'm yeah. I'm I'm speculating completely just off off the cuff here so so nothing i've said about memory is, is something that i've found in a study or somewhere else is just speculations but uh, yeah interesting anyway i definitely encourage all the listeners to go watch some darren brown yeah. videos on youtube it's absolutely incredible like i just was just so addicted going through yeah. all no, of he's them. awesome like, it's, yeah. It's, 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 yeah he also does this cool thing that he realized he could do in college and i don't know what this how this relates to the hypnosis thing that i was saying because this is not a selection effect but he realized he can just walk up to somebody in a very um, confident forward way, like put his hand on their face and say sleep. And then they just like pass out. They just like completely pass out. And he like, will just call like audience members up on stage and then just fucking knock them out with like his words and his confidence. It's crazy. And he realized he could do this in college. And I have Can no you idea. Can you yeah. imagine learning you have that skill? I yeah, would I know. The fuck out I know. I'd be walking around. Sleep. Yeah, like, um, sorry, teacher, I don't want to hand in my assignment. Sleep. And he just like <laughs> knocked them, knocked them out. But you can see him doing this live on, on stage. And like, um, I don't think he's lying. I don't think they're planted actors. I think that it's just something that he realized he could... You could do like yeah. if you go up to somebody and you shock them in such an intense way, do this thing now, then I think a lot of people will just like automatically 
do it, you know? Anyway, should we uh, grab a drink and get into it? Or any last thoughts on your mind before we dive into AUA number three? No, let's do it. If you give an answer I don't like, I'm going to try and fucking hypnotize you over <laughs> Zoom. But other than that... Sleep. Sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's do it. Nice, let's do it. So as we mentioned... I think a couple episodes back, we did start a Patreon. Uh, We were undecided at that point precisely what the Patreon benefits were going to be. But now we've sort of settled on at least a couple things. So if you join the Patreon at any tier, you get early access to episodes. So we're going to release the the episodes approximately approximately a week early. Uh, You also get shorter little bonus episodes of us just kind of shooting the shit about various topics. By the time this comes out, there will be two bonus episodes, one on lying and one on whether the author can be wrong about their own work. And uh, and a little snippet about Vaden just taking a big swing at the stupid Barbie movie. God, that oh, yeah. stupid, stupid Barbie movie. Anyway, so uh, we appreciate all the support, and uh, fuck you if you're not a patron. So. <laughs> and uh, I think one place that we're going to start putting the Patreon money is um, we're considering hiring a social media manager to replace Ben's presence on Twitter. No, just just, yeah. just kidding. No, um, I think our plan is to try to expand into different social medias because we got a couple of um, people who are saying, uh, uh, we tried to find you on Instagram and uh, couldn't find you there. And I was like, oh, maybe there's a young, younger audience of preteen teeny boppers or whoever's using Instagram <laughs> these days. Um, but uh, Instagram, uh, Snapchat, and uh, maybe even TikTok if there's a way we can put content on there. So that's roughly the plan for what we're going to start spending some of this uh, beautiful Patreon money for to um, increase the audience. So, uh, so just so you know that we're not just purely drinking it away. I mean, some of that is being tracked away, but not all of it. Uh, <laughs> Only and, and most have. Yeah. And what are we talking about today, Mister Ben? Uh, we are doing our third AMA. We're slowly increasing our clip of how many questions we get through every time. So the more we do this, soon we'll be doing hundreds of questions per episode just a couple word answers for each. yeah yeah it's just yes or no answers <laughs> yeah, exactly thumbs yeah, up thumbs yeah, down. yeah 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 uh so question one comes from neil hudson um and he asks are there any theories as to the type of universality achievable via the genetic code uh, and then he says in the beginning of infinity it is presumed to fall short of coding for all possible life forms um yeah so i honestly have nothing interesting to say on this <laughs> question yeah um, I think the only thing of value I could possibly say is to just read the paragraph in the beginning of Infinity where um, Neil is getting his quote from, or his uh, question from, because it totally went past me when I um, read the book the nth time. Um, and it's it's an interesting point, and I basically have nothing to say. I, I, I don't know the answer. Um, so I was going to read that, but maybe if you do have something interesting to say, we should, uh, I'll pass it back to you. But um, uh, But yeah, I'm coming up blank on this one, so... Yeah, it's kind of an interesting question. I'm assuming he means like forms of like in terms of um, like physical forms of life, right? Like I don't think yeah. he because if if he buys like the universal explainer logic from Deutsch, then intelligent life in some sense is like all the same. So presumably what he means is like by if if there was a life form that was not programmable by the genetic code, he, he doesn't mean uh, in terms of mental abilities he just means in terms of like actual like the physical nature of the life form or something um, like what like I'm, I'm not i'm not quite sure what the question actually means yeah okay so i i think i i can disentangle that a little bit and uh, maybe i'll i'll just give a bit of background because i think it's easy for you and i to assume that people are much more 
familiar with some concepts like universality than, uh, than perhaps they are because uh, there's some hardcore Deutschians in our audience who will obviously understand what the question is. But if you're not a hardcore Deutschian, you might not even know what, uh, what that means. So um, the, uh, the major example that, uh, that Deutsch gives, he gives a number of examples of, of types of universality. One is um, the printing press. So there's all sorts of different ways to copy text at large scales uh, before the printing press was invented. But they were all non-universal in the sense that if you made a big block that, for example, could print the, the first page of the Bible, then you'd have to make an entirely different one to print the second page and the third page because it was just like a big stamp. And so we would say that's not universal. Um, but then once the technology was invented that allowed you to have individual blocks for individual letters, and then you could rearrange them, then all of a sudden anything that could be printed could be um, printed at large scales and so you'd say that that was kind of a jump to universality in the sense that after you have the technology that allows you to print individual letters, then you can print any kind of word, text, paragraph you like at all. And the only way to innovate beyond that is just to make it kind of more efficient and, and faster. Um, another kind of universality is the um, uh, Roman numeral system because, uh, or, sorry, the, um, the alphanumeric system that we're currently using, uh, I guess came from. Uh, Persia or, or uh, yeah, it's the Arabic. Arabic yeah, Arabic. System, yeah. Uh, so sorry. So the Roman numeral system is not universal because you had to keep coming up with different letters to uh, express higher and higher um, numbers. And so every time you wanted to think of a number that was larger, you had to come up with like a new a new letter. Um, but the uh, Arabic numeral system, um, by encoding all numbers just with the digits of zero to nine, uh, you could uh, express any number imaginable just by adding extra uh, zero. So that's a universal system. Um, computational universality is another one. So we talked in the first AMA about um, uh, different kinds of computing machines. So we talked about finite state automatas, which could express some kinds of programs. And then you had the more advanced version, which is a pushdown automata, and that could express different kinds of programs, more uh, express more programs than the first set. So all programs that could be expressed in the first set can be necessarily expressed in the second set, but not vice versa. But then once you get to a Turing machine, then every possible co uh, program is um, programmable on that uh, computer. And so that's, again, a jump to universality because uh, it's universally applicable to all problems in that, in that domain. So um, the question that uh, Neil is asking is, um, it is established that the genome is computationally universal because, I guess, in 1994... A uh, computer scientist named Leonard Al Adelman, I'm, I'm reading that, um, designed and built a computer composed of DNA together with simple enzymes and demonstrated that it was capable of performing some sophisticated computations. At the time, um, so I'm quoting uh, beginning of infinity now, um, at the time, the DNA computer was arguably the fastest computer in the world. Further, it was clear that a universal classic computer could be made in a similar way. Hence, we know that what other um, forms of universality the DNA system was, the universality of computation had been inherent in it for billions of years without ever being used. So, um, so it is known that the genetic code is um, computationally universal in the sense that any program can be expressed in it. But could it have other kinds of universality as well? For example, could it be a universal constructor? So could it construct any physical object that is known to be um, physically uh, possible? Um, so that would be a kind of universality that is an open question. Is that um, also, so is, is the genetic code both 
computationally universal and a universal constructor? Um, does it encode other kinds of universality as well, or just the computational piece? And I think that's the um, the heart of Neil's uh, question. Uh, Neil, if you're listening and we I got it wrong, please um, write in and correct me. But um, I believe that's what he's he's asking. So just to repeat the question, are there any theories as to the type of universality achieved via the genetic code? Because in beginning of infinity, it's presumed to fall short of coding for all possible life forms. And I think what um, the second part means is just that um, there's no reason to assume that life only must be carbon-based. Um, maybe you could have a life that's made of um, cyanide silicon or, or silicon or something. Um, and so if the genetic code is coding cyanide. for... Can you yes, yes, yeah, yeah. want to meet them. Be yeah, I know. That would be very uh, <laughs> off-putting for sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so I believe that's what he, he's asking. So, uh, maybe the genetic code is, uh, is, is universal for like carbon-based life forms, but maybe there's other kinds of life forms that it, um, can't, um, code up. I mean, yeah, I get, so if that's the question, then yeah, I guess it has a somewhat straightforward answer, like, because it's carbon-based, you know, it can't start coding, it can't start making silicon, right? That's just out of its purview. But I kind of took the question to be slightly more abstract. What the genetic code is, is just like sequences of nucleotide, z right yeah. or like sequences of like uh, what are they called uh, codons i think or whatever or like the the actual um, yeah like the ac acgc acgt yeah right right so these little like uh, blocks of acgg yeah acgt pairs yeah, like yeah. codons that make nucleotides etc um and i kind of took him to mean like does that abstract mechanism for creating things is that universal not because you could imagine having that sort of thing that's not carbon-based but yeah. just like sequences of like nucleotides code for similar things, but are out, made out of like s- silicon or something or yeah. that are like uh, digital, which I guess is true. Right? I guess that's what you were saying, right? The actual like computational aspects of it are universal. Yeah. The computational aspect is, um, well, so, so maybe um, I should read the paragraph before the one I just read, which is where um, Neil is drawing his question from. Like, again, I have, I basically, I don't know the answer to his question, um, but I can maybe just provide a bit of context and that's, probably the only thing of value I can add here. But um, so the quote reads, the genetic code is presumably not universal for specifying life forms since it relies on specific types of chemicals such as proteins. Could it be a universal constructor? Perhaps. Um, it does manage to build with inorganic materials sometimes, such as the calcium phosphate in bones or the mag- magnetite Uh, and the navigation system inside a pigeon's brain. So skipping a little bit, perhaps it would be possible to specify in the genetic code an organism whose life cycle includes building nuclear-powered spaceships, or perhaps not. Um, I guess it has some lesser and not yet understood form of universality. So so yeah, so here Deutsch is kind of speculating about if um, the genetic code could, in addition to being computationally universal, uh, code for universal constructors. Um, And what's interesting is I heard from... Logan, so shout out to Logan, that uh, Deutsch's view about people being universal constructors has evolved. And now he's actually saying that people are not universal constructors, which uh, maybe that's what he's saying in his book. But um, but my impression was that he was saying people are universal constructors. But the reason why he's saying uh, that they're not anymore is that uh, people can choose not to construct. Um, so a universal constructor uh, is something which I guess necessarily has to replicate itself um, by creating a copy of itself. Uh, but humans can choose not to reproduce. Humans can choose not to build things. And so just the fact that humans can disobey their instructions is um, a reason why Deutsch is no longer considering human beings to be universal constructors. But Did he in his book? 
Um, I, so I don't remember. Maybe this is just something that I've like uh, misunderstood and and just have assumed he's been saying that about people. But um, so yeah, so it could uh, good point. So maybe it's just a confusion on my side, um, or maybe Deutsch has evolved his view or changed his view. Um, all I can say is that Logan pointed out a mistake that I was making, um, which is that humans are not um, universal constructors under Deutsch's conception. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, so yeah, exercise for the reader to see if Deutsch was saying that in his book or not, because I don't remember. Well, unclear if we've given anything of substance yeah. as an answer to that question. Well, I, guess, I think I can just safely say I'm confused yeah. and I don't know. Well, so one other comment. So there's just like a meta comment, um, which is I totally had this little moment of seeing why like Eric Weinstein could go off in the direction that he went off in, in the sense that when I first got this question, I'm like, oh my God, I don't know the answer. I have to say something intelligent. But I couldn't just admit that I don't know the answer to it uh, because now we have an audience and now we have it. And it's like there's a little moment of, of, of me feeling that way and then realizing yeah. no, that's completely stupid because if I don't have an answer to something, if I don't know, I just have to say I don't know. But uh, but there is this you like little pull, to, yeah, this little to, pull of like audience capture and want to just keep like keep just appearing like you know all the answers to everything and um and so it's just funny that I had a little tinge of that when I first read this question. Okay, so Neil's second question is um so he's riffing a bit on the uh sperber mercier thesis if people remember we did we summarized and talked about their book in an older episode their books the enigma of reason one of the main theses of that is that um reason is a social phenomenon it's a it's a collective thing much more than is an individual thing and so it's like an evolutionary account of how reason evolved yeah um and its various mechanisms and uh so he's talking about that and he says if one has scarce amounts of time then is it possible that the the need to constantly avow one's public identity might swamp the critical evaluation of arguments? And so this is talking a bit about like truth seeking versus status. So uh, if people recall, Berber and Mercier posit two roles of reason. And one is the justificatory role. Yeah. And so this is so the first thing is like when we have our own ideas, we want to justify ourselves and our ideas to people. Yeah. And so this is where like confirmation bias and stuff arises from because like we're invested in our own ideas. We want to pass them off to other people. And that's when we kind of have the blinders on. Um, yeah. And we do, we're, we're, we're less objective and open minded when it comes to our own ideas. Let me just add one, one tiny thing there, which is that um, Sperbier, Sperbier, uh, Sperber and um, Mercier prefer using the term my side bias over confirmation bias. And I really like that uh, because that I think is getting closer to what they're talking about, which is just um, you're biased towards your side of whatever argument you're on, your side of whatever tribe you're in. And so you'll often deploy um, reason and arguments in defense of your side. And that's, quote, the justificatory role Um which is basically, uh, I like chocolate, you like vanilla, and I'm going to come up with a bunch of reasons why chocolate is so much better than, than vanilla. And, um, and so that would be me deploying reason to justify my perspective. Uh, and then the mm -hmm. second um, role of reason is what you're about to introduce. And, uh, and yeah, so just to emphasize the my side bias uh, as a nice terminology to describe what they're thinking about. Yeah, so and then the second role is this like, evaluation role so this is where we're evaluating the arguments from other people and uh when we're doing that we're actually much more critical so we engage our critical fa faculties yeah. um and there we're much better at like being objective getting to the truth and remaining sort of unbiased in our reason yeah um and anyway they you can go listen to that, that episode they flesh out the consequences of this and argue that why, why this sort of model fits what we see better than 
better than, for example, the yeah, the Kahneman thesis, so, etc. Uh, justificatory. I don't know if I can even pronounce that word. Justificatory, Just, yeah. Justificatory. And what was the opposite? The other one? Uh, I know. I I forget yeah. too. I, I called it yeah. evaluative, but I don't actually yeah. think that's right. I think it's then, um, or, I think or it, argumentative. Or argu- no, no um, yeah, critical, evaluative. Basically, just to emphasize that, so um, the yeah. justificatory would be me coming up with a bunch of arguments to explain why chocolate is so much better than vanilla, and then the evaluatory, which is, might not be their terminology, is um, when I'm listening to you do the same about your side. So I'm um, trying to critically poke holes in your um, uh, justifications, your rationale for why vanilla is so much better than than chocolate. And uh, Sperber and Mercier's main point is that we are much better at the second one than we are at the first one. So it's much easier for us to poke holes and spot flaws in our uh, opponent's arguments than it is to come up with strong arguments ourselves. Hence why we need a, a social view of, of reason and rationality, because it's only through this collective, I'm evaluating you, you're evaluating me um, a mechanism that the best arguments can win, win the day. And, uh, and so recognizing, and, and honestly, that's like one of the things that's so valuable about having this podcast with you is that most of what I say probably sucks and you knock down 95% of it. But then the 5% that kind of remains is like what I'm going to talk about at parties and things with people. Um, those are the, the ones that are hard to, hard to refute. Um, and that's why, um, the collectively you and I are much more reasonable as a, as a, as a dyad than we are um, individually. Yeah, really. Yeah, it really highlights the importance of like social epistemology as opposed to like yeah. the less wrong style of things where you just sit yeah. in a room and think really hard and like un- you debias yeah. yourself. You yeah, know, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Just tick off those lists of all yeah, your, yeah, all yeah, the mental yeah. issues. And um, okay, so so how I understood this question was like, are there circumstances basically? where like you engage mo- like most of your day-to-day is engaging in like the justificatory role of reason the yep. re- number one right and yep. you're like you start doing the second mode of reasoning like less and less and i thought this was a pretty good question so like the example that came to mind is actually what you just mentioned a few minutes ago which is basically like audience capture yep. so if you've built a brand around some idea right yep. or you gained a popularity by being very vocally on one side of some yep. issue then you kind of feel that your identity and your livelihood is like tied up mm-hmm. trying to defend um, some idea. And like, you're, you're really not ever incentivized to go in to the more critical mode of evaluation, yeah. right? You're always going to just be trying to justify your own ideas. Um, and uh, so I, I can, I definitely agree. Like, I think there are situations just like social milieus that you can find yourself in where you're just like, not going to be ever forced to critically evaluate arguments. And then I thought it's useful to consider when that happens and to make sure decision-making procedures, whether they're like private or public or whatever, have incentive structures set up in such a way where people are incentivized to be critical. So skin in the game, I think, from like Taleb is a pretty useful heuristic here. Because like when you have skin in the game and you're really trying to make a decision, then when someone gives you some opposite opinion, you have to sort of go into like critical evaluation mode. Because now you're actually trying to like the, the, the result of the decision is going to affect you. And I think this is the issue with echo chambers and podcast commentators like us. Yep. You can get into this situation where like what you say is totally divorced from the actual consequences. You're not trying to like, you're not incentivized to truth seek anymore. You're just incentivized to like build your brand. Yeah. And those can be very different things. Um, and so I don't think I have too much more to add over. Um, I feel like people have talked about this for a long time now, like trying to 
trying to put yourself in situations and cultivate friendships and dynamics where you're being pushed back, your ideas are being pushed back on a lot. um, And you can't just sort of free ride in this like reasoning mode, number one. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Yeah. Um, So I I agree with everything you you said. That that was uh, excellent. Um, I would just maybe add this uh, notion that I think we've talked about uh, perhaps in our episode with Chris Lovegren about ideas and identity. So um, it is a it's a principle of mine. It's a very uh, something that I hold very close to my heart that I, I never try to let ideas that I like become an identity of mine. So um, identities that I do hold are things like husband, father, friend, Canadian, student, uh, researcher. These are things that are totally um, uh, how I identify. But I don't identify as a critical rationalist or an effective altruist or a um, left winger or a right winger or uh a libertarian or a uh, XYZ, because now it's an identity formed around a certain set of ideas that I, I hold. Um, and the reason why that's, I think, so dangerous is people do not like changing their identity. So um, I have an identity uh, internally, and I hope that people view me this way as well, um, as like a good friend and a good uh, a good dad and a good, a good partner. Um, if uh, Helena or Georgia or you were to say, actually, you know what, um, these things you did the last six months were pretty horrible. And, and, uh, like that would gut me because I would be, um, attacking some deep part of my identity and I would really not want to, uh, to change that. But often like those are the criticisms you need to hear the most. Um, but just when it becomes a part of your identity, you're much less real, um, willing to, to change your mind. And so, uh, that's why I don't, identify myself as a member of the critical rationalist community because if people want to talk about how stupid and crazy those crit rats are like it doesn't matter to me like i yeah. i'm aware of that community i i love them they're they're all good friends of mine but i don't feel in my heart of hearts that um if you were to insult a critical rationalist that i would be uh, hurt by that because uh, it's an idea that i i have not an identity that i that i hold and so um so then uh, Neil adds this public dimension, uh, which is that the need to constantly avow one's public identity may swamp the critical evaluation of arguments. I think that's like 100% true, because mm-hmm. um, even if you don't have a public persona or a public identity, even if your identity is just, um, I am a socialist, again, socialist is a set of ideas that you're now holding as an identity, then even if that's the private and you don't have a public persona, if people attack socialism, you're going to be very defensive of that. You're not going to want to um, give a little bit of an inch. Once that becomes a public identity, then it's just even harder to change. So it just uh, raises the stakes. So I think making it public just makes the identity even harder to change, which is why um, I think it's just so important to... So I, like someone says, dude, you talk about critical rationalism all the time. Um, we think of you as criti- a critical rationalist. How can you possibly say you're not a critical rationalist? Then to them, I would say, for sure. I mean, uh, identity is is partially internal and partially external. So... Um, I can't control how other people view me. And if people view me as a critical rationalist, then I'm not going to argue with them and fine, just view me whatever you, however you like. Um, but inside, in my heart of hearts, I don't think of myself that way. And that's um, how I, I uh, hopefully allow myself to be more um, open to criticisms of critical rationalism and open to, say, defenses of effective altruism. Because I've been very critical of EA, but there's a lot of great things about EA. And I have no problem talking about all the great things, too, because, again, I don't have an identity as being one or, or the other. Um, so I'll just echo everything that Neil was saying and say, uh, yeah, I think that that absolutely uh, can, can happen um, for sure. And so we always be on guard for that. 
as always, uh, Paul Graham got there first with his good essay, Keep Your Identity Small. Yeah, so I read that essay much later, and uh, it was just one of these moments of like reading things that you feel like you've always known, but it just hasn't been put into words before. And it's just yeah. a really nice, uh, a nice essay about, about exactly what we're talking about here. Yeah. 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 It's nice. So Arun asks, uh, what are your thoughts on inexplicit knowledge, uh, to use some Deutsch jargon and more broadly, um, emotions, feelings in the mind. Um, how do these interplay with explicit ideas and thoughts? Uh, what should we prioritize if we don't prioritize one over the other, how to resolve conflicts between them? Any tips, literature, Popperian wisdom you can share on this? So, Ben, what do you think? I don't have too much to say here. One thing that I've found odd and that I don't resonate with tons is talking about emotions as theories. And so I yeah. know this is pretty yeah. popular in like the in CR circles and Deutsch, I think, sort of started this trend. Yeah. As far as I can tell. But he'll just kind of talk about the, you know, the mind as this bag of theories, emotions included, and like sort of everything is a theory about something. And I find it that waters down for me what what a theory does. And then then trying to demarcate like scientific discussions from just other kind of things. So, but that's more just like a complaint about language, which I mean, who cares that much? You know, like when he speaks, he's quite clear. You kind of know what he's saying. But so, so all that said, that's not to say that I don't think like emotions are unimportant or anything. And uh, I think you're, you often have emotional reactions for a reason. And they're very much worth investigating and like taking seriously. All I can say for me is like, um, in ter- when it comes to decision making, I try and not prioritize assuming that there's you know, you don't have to make a decision immediate immediately. I do try and not prioritize between like either my head or my gut. Mm. Um, and try and like reason through the problem or feel it out, or just like sit with something and tell sort of my head and my gut or are both on the same page and they sort of agree. I have had situations where that's taken a long time. And like, for some reason, like emotionally, you sort of feel one way. And then logically, when you reason things through, you feel another way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to make a decision. And then in that case, I can't give an authoritative answer of like which one you should listen to. I mean, that's kind of up to you and depends on the situation, et cetera. Um, I think ideally you try and identify like why emotionally you're feeling one way and why logically you're feeling the other way. And often given long enough or, you know, given, you know, talking to people or going to therapy or or whatever, you could figure out how to reconcile those things and figure out like, what were your emotions trying to tell you? What's your brain trying to tell you? And then you kind of make a decision once they're all on board. And actually this sort of approach has made me a little more sympathetic to what Luli mentioned in one of our episodes, which is like internal family systems. Mm. I'm not like a, I don't know much about it, but I do kind of like the idea of treating like different parts of yourself as like having their own desires and voices and kind of listening to like one part of you that uh, wants thing A and then another part of you that might want thing B and then another part of you that's scared about you know, like being alone or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Being alone oh, and dying got, alone. Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Thing A, thing B, thing and then thing C, which is being alone. alone and dying alone. <laughs> yeah. Nobody cares about you. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So in that sense, I can see what Deutsch means when he says yeah. emotions or theories. Because like often different emotions are sort of attached to like different things or worried about different things or trying to tell you different things, etc. And like trying to sit with that and understand those various aspects of you, I think can be like healthy and good. And, you know, you work that out, how people have worked 
things like that out for a long time by talking to people and journaling and, you know, doing all that healthy, introspective work. And that's kind of all I have to say, to be honest. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I actually have a a good amount to say on this subject. So I remember a long time ago reading a quote from David Hume, who said that um, reason will always be the slave of the passions. Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember reading that and thinking, well, speak for yourself, buddy. I'm a, I'm a (laughs) rational guy all the way through. I don't let my passions um, uh, dictate anything, but I think he's 100% uh, right that uh, typically your emotions fire first and then your uh, reason fires uh, second. So Mm -hmm. explicit example for me is um, I had a very strong emotional reaction to um, long-termism when I first heard about it. Uh, I thought it was just a horrendous idea that um, I first heard about in our second first or second conversation so if listeners want to go into the archives um i think i think for like 10 minutes at the end of maybe our episode zero one or two uh, we talk a little bit about long-termism and i kind of had a bit of a gut saying like uh this seems like it's utopian man i don't know if i like this very much um and so that was a gut feeling first and then later when we started digging in that was when all the 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 reasoning um started uh, firing um and so i guess what i wanted to emphasize is that um when we think about the word emotion, I think we tend to immediately think about um, love, hate, anger, lust, uh, these kind of emotions. But um, that's only one small subset of emotions, and those are often the ones that uh, interfere with uh, the reasoning process. And in that sense, it could kind of be set up as um, a dichotomy between emotions and your reasoning process. But that's only looking at a small sliver of the emotions. Um, Here's some other emotions that I think are uh, not in opposition to reason, but in um, lockstep with it. Uh, The emotion of curiosity or of boredom or of interest or of obsession with a problem or of being in flow state. Uh, These are all feelings. And these are feelings which I think are unbelievably valuable and absolutely worth listening to. Um, And so if I'm feeling uh, curious and interested in something, then I absolutely listen to that and I follow that. Um, And that is an emotion that's a feeling. Um, if I'm feeling bored, uh, of something, um, then that also is something that I tend to listen to, uh, specifically what that means is if I'm, uh, forced to attend these stupid corporate seminars about the HR policy of some big company, then, uh, I'm bored as hell and I'm not going to waste any time on that at all. I'm just going to work on another problem as uh, I'm enduring this same with like, uh, diversity seminars and stuff. And so I listen to the feeling of boredom if I'm like super bored about something. I'm just not going to invest too much time in it. And that's all emotions. Um, and so I think that uh, listening to your emotions um, is is a uh, very valuable thing. And realizing the types of emotions which can uh, direct you in the right direction. So uh, Deutsch is excited about the fun criterion, and um, that's an emotion. But we don't even need to go into the fun criterion because maybe a bit too Deutschian for me because then you start talking about emotions as theories and stuff. But just think about curiosity and flow state and obsession and interest. These are emotions too. And um, these ones are absolutely uh, in, in line with, with uh, reason. Let's not forget, arguably, the single most important emotion when we're talking about the reasoning process. And that emotion is intuition. So intuition is an emotion. And that is arguably the scientists, uh, the thinker, the skeptics' greatest tool, Right. Um, it's a it's a vague gut feeling that something might work, but it's only present 
in the absence of rational argument. So you don't have an intuition and a rational logical argument for something. You only ever have that intuition before you have the rational argument. Um, but following that intuition and, and, um, using that as like your, uh, um, your, uh, North star, your compass is what successful scientists do and what successful artists do and what successful uh, plumbers do and what successful roofers do is they just have a intuition that this thing is wrong and this thing will, will fix it. Um, and then they deploy their ration, their rational thought, um, afterwards. And, uh, and that was one of the things that I, um, found quite abhorrent about uh, long-termism and EA is that it continuously teaches people to ignore their intuitions, um, ignore the intuition that this is making sense, or they have an intuition that considering the lives of people a billion trillion years from now um, as equal to the life of your child is um, an immoral thing to do. But, uh, but EA teaches to ignore that, to ignore that intuition of yours because it can so often lead you astray. And it can lead you astray, but it can also lead you in the right direction too. And so convincing people to ignore that in intuition of theirs, I think is uh, an absolutely terrible thing to do uh, because that's one of our most valuable um, emotions, I would, I would say. Um, so I have a couple other things I want to say, but, uh, but maybe I'll pause there and shoot it back to you to see, see if any of that lands or you disagree. Uh, no, I don't disagree. I mean, it sounds like you want to decide basically whether you're going to listen to the emotion or not. What I was saying is if you're deciding not to listen to the emotion. I think you can often get the emotions on board with that yep. decision by recognizing like where the original emotion came from and then being like, I don't, I don't view it as you have an emotion and then you either try and justify that emotion by doing yep. whatever, or you say, fuck this emotion, I'm going to do something else. And the emotion yep. just is like this static thing. I, yep. you know, emotions like ebb and flow and they yep. change and there's often multiple and so mm -hmm. I think it's more a matter of, you know, you, ha you have an emotional reaction to something and then maybe a logical reaction that maybe follows the emotional reaction or is independent of it. You can often work through the problem in such a way that afterwards, both your emotions and your logical mind are like on board with it. Um, yeah. So two other thoughts uh, I have there, one, um, a reference and one like a personal story. Um, so the reference, uh, so uh, everyone asks about any literature or wisdom we can share. And I'll just say uh, John Cleese's book, please, please read John Cleese's book, because the whole thing is about um, trying to um, come up with uh, environments you can cultivate for yourself, specifically um, chunks of time where you can go into just a focused state and then chunks of time where you're just um, free associating and playing with your dog, that, that kind of thing. Um, you come up with these kind of uh, environments that allows your... Um, emotional, playful, unconscious, uh, not logical mind to start offering up uh, new creative ideas, new uh, directions, new intuitions, uh, that then your rational mind can then operate on, the, kind of serves up the raw material that your rational mind can then um, sculpt and shape. So that to me was the best treatment of the subject. How should we as um, uh, Popperian rationalists um, interface with this more squishy, uh, less logical uh, part of our mind, and I think John Cleese's book is just packed with insights and wisdom about how to um, how to do that. So, uh, so uh, strong recommendation um, to read to read that book. Um, but yeah, so the personal anecdote is um, I had this very interesting experience happen to me a couple of years ago, where my emotional intuition part of my mind and my rational part of my mind were just completely out of sync, and uh, and that's when I had a full blown fucking manic episode that put me into a state of psychosis for like three weeks and put me in the hospital for like a month. Um, 
And it was a very stressful circumstance, which led me here. I was diagnosed with like bipolar one, which for people who um, uh, don't know, like bipolar two is the one you think about uh, with Kanye, uh, for example, this like a lifetime of highs and lows of peaks and, um, and valleys. Uh, but bipolar one is much more of an expansive definition. And the only uh, criterion really is you have some manic episode that uh, winds you up in the hospital. Um, mm-hmm. And so it can potentially happen over and over again, or it could potentially be a one shot, one shot thing. Um, so fingers crossed it's a one shot thing for, uh, for me, but, um, but yeah, so I was in this state of psychosis for like probably three and a half weeks and it was a very weird, um, feeling. Um, but one thing that was so uh, interesting to me is that, um, the, the emotion of things making sense. So I've tried to explain this, like maybe I'll use, um, a home example. So you're trying to fix your toilet and you know, something is wrong. I think I've used the toilet example in the past. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, you have yeah, uh, you try to fix your toilet. Something's wrong. Uh, you check X, you check Y, and then you check Z, and you're like, "Oh, okay, Z is the thing that is the cause of this problem." And you have this little like aha moment, this moment of like perfect clarity. Everything's making sense. You get it, and then you figure out what the problem is. You solve it. And you you move, move forward. You, this happens in math. This happens in programming. This happens in basically any problem solving, whatever, where you uh, are in a state of pure confusion, and then you have this like moment of pure clarity, insight aha, and then you move forward and, and you, you go, uh, go on with your life. But when I was psychotic, um, I kept having this feeling of aha moments that were completely divorced from the reality. So this is a, a, is very interesting because now my emotional mm. side of my brain, which I had always relied on to uh, lead me in the right direction, was completely disconnected with reality. Um, and so I continuously was having like five or six times um, like every hour, uh, this like, ah, now I figured out the problem. Now I figured out the solution. Here's the answer. I got it. And then I would just speak at three X speed, which obviously listening to podcasts at two X speed does not help uh, when you're, when you're (laughs) manic, um, speaking so fast, trying to explain the solution. And then Helena's like progressively getting scareder and scareder because I'm sounding crazier and crazier. And then I'd have another one and then I would speak and speak and speak. And then to be wow. scarier and crazier and then another one. And it was just this very discombobulating feeling of, um, now I know it's real. Now I know what's happened. Everything previously was a mistake and then it happens again and it happens again. And so it was just very clear when I was in this like psychotic state, when my emotional part of my mind and my rational, reasonable part of my mind are not in sync with each other, all hell breaks loose. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and so it just showed me so clearly how, um, important it is that, um, your brain, when you have this feeling of aha moment or insight or intuition, that it loosely, roughly follows reality um, most of the time. But when you're psychotic or when you're manic, um, like a good representation of mania was uh, shown in the, mo- in the TV show Euphoria, where one of the lead characters in one of the episodes goes manic and it cuts between her like freaking out in her bedroom to like what she sees. And what she sees is like her with her little detective hat on and the board covered in like push pins and red mm. uh, string connecting this with that. And she's cracking right, the right. case. Um, and so that's what it feels like on the inside, but on the outside, you just are going progressively crazier and crazier. And, uh, and so it's just very apropos to this question. Like when your emotional side of your brain is firing in exactly the wrong direction as your rational side, all hell breaks loose. But um, for most people, most of the time, uh, everything's just working nicely. And that's, mm. and they don't, it's working so nicely that they don't even think of things like, curiosity, boredom, fun, interest, flow state as emotions. But these are emotions. And these are emotions which mm. are 
very epistemologically irrelevant. Um, and so when those are broken, then everything else breaks down too. Um, and so that was just a, a personal story that happened to me that is kind of relevant to the, uh, the question at hand. No. Wow. Nice man. Yeah. That's some, yeah. that's some serious insight. Yeah. It's, it was weird. Yeah. It's like being on acid, but, uh, you don't know you're on acid. And the only sign is that everyone around you starts thinking you're crazier and crazier and crazier. And it was, it was, yeah, it was very bizarre, but, uh, yeah. So I don't, I don't wish psychosis on anyone, but if they do have it, hopefully it's mild in the sense that you're not going violent or anything. And you're like, it was interesting. Cause when I was like that, um, part of my psychotic state was just like literally thinking I was poppers like student. It was like very strange, but because of that, this thing of like, always listen to you people around you and constantly criticize yourself. is like going through my mind a thousand degrees. And so, uh, not a thousand, a thousand uh, miles per second. And, um, and so despite being utterly crazy, like the Popperian stuff, like literally saved my life because everyone's like, you should go to the hospital now. I'm like, okay, I'll go to the hospital. And, uh, it's just like kind of trusting that the people around you are going to steer you in the right direction, even uh, while your mind is firing in different, in, in different ways. So, um, so I was very pliable. I was very like suggestible and okay. If everyone thinks I should go to the hospital, I'll go, but, uh, they don't realize that I'm cracking the case on, uh, making my way there. But, um, but yeah, so it's just interesting aside about how uh, popperianism basically saved my uh, saved my life in that particular instance. So wow, that's actually amazing. Yeah, because like yeah, I mean, there's a fine line, I guess, right? Like you're probably your environment matters a hell of a lot yeah. during a manic episode, and like there's yeah probably not that much difference between like yeah what happened to you and then what happened to, like Freddie DeBoer, right? Who like is wandering? Oh, yeah, exactly. It's like just well, you should yeah. say for the audience who Freddie DeBoer is, and yeah, true. So <laughs> Freddie DeBoer is a Marxist writer who had a psychotic break uh four or five years ago now yeah so he was on honesty with barry weiss um it's a really interesting subject matter because he was responding to an article that was written in the new york times um or the new yorker talking about how um uh antipsychotics uh, is just part of like the um this pharmaceutical industry and uh really we should view um uh mental illnesses like bipolar or schizophrenia as just like uh, neurodivergences and there's no way mm-hmm. to talk about um, not being psychotic as being any better or worse than being psychotic because it's just all different ways that the brain can operate and it's really our bias which is um, uh, leading people to think that um, say not hearing voices is better than um, hearing voices and so Freddie DeBoer comes on and is very forceful in saying like that is the most dangerous and insane thing that a writer could say because like I when I was psychotic thought that my ex-girlfriend was putting um, glass in my food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that was an example that he gave. And mm-hmm. like, um, if he just went a little bit further, he could have started thinking like, well, I better get her first before she gets me. Uh, and that's why mm-hmm. psychosis um, can, can sometimes lead to, to violence um, because you're just, you're scared and confused. Uh, and so, um, so it's, it's an amazing conversation. We should actually link to it in the podcast. Today. Yeah, we will. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It'd be fun to actually talk about that episode. Maybe we should, uh, listen to it and reflect Ooh, we could do a yeah. patreon episode yeah oh there we go Bo- oh let's talk about bipolar stuff only in the patreon so if yeah, people yeah, want to hear yeah, about yeah. that they have to they have to pay yeah, pay for my therapy <laughs> but, <laughs> um all right so tom nassis asks discord aficionado all yeah. around great guy shout out to tom really keeping our discord lively so yeah thank god for tom yeah thank you um so he asks a couple questions the first of which is is the sole purpose of all forms of thinking problem solving or can thinking have purposes other than solving a problem? So I love this question. I think there's a lot of interesting um, uh, components to it. 
The first thing I would say is we have to be careful with a question like this. I think we have to be very careful. Uh, we can say that the um, the sole purpose of all problem of all thinking is problem solving, um, and I think that that's probably true. I actually I do think that that's true. Um, so I would say uh, yes, but I have to be cautious in the sense that um, when we say something like this, uh, this is not a scientific claim. It's not falsifiable. You can easily just expand the definition of problem solving to include everything. So you could say. Um, uh, working on a, a video game is problem solving because you're trying to get to the next level. And I think everybody would agree that that's problem solving. But then you could also say uh, being depressed and alone is problem solving because you are um, lying in bed trying to think about the thing you said 16 years ago and trying to solve maybe the wrong problem. So maybe that's like problem solving gone wrong. Or you could say that being in a float tank and, and literally doing nothing and just meditating is also problem solving because um, now you're trying to solve the problem of your uh, um, uh, trying to control your internal thoughts. And so while I think it's true, I think that it's um, true partially because you can just define problem solving so expansively as to encompass everything that the human brain does. Um, and second, uh, because this is not a scientific thing to say about the brain it's, it, or about people, it's a, it's a metaphysical thing to say. It's a philosophical thing to say. It's a lens. It's a framework. It's not a... Um, falsifiable statement of, of fact. Um, we just have to recognize that there are many other ways to describe human cognition um, as well. So here's an example of a number of different lenses. Uh, so you could say, take the Popperian lens that all forms of thinking is problem solving. Uh, you could take like the Kahneman lens that all forms of thinking splits into system one or system two. Um, mm -hmm. So you're slow plotting um, a deliberative uh, conscious mind and your more fast, reactive, uh, intuitive mind. Um, that too is not falsifiable. It's just a, a framework. Um, you could take like a Julia Galef framework, which says all forms of thinking is like either a scout mindset or soldier mindset. Again, both scout and soldier can be expansively defined as to include everything. You can take the framework that this, uh, Guy Claxton takes, which I learned about this from, um, uh, Cleese's book. Uh, and he basically takes the lens of like Daniel Kahneman system one, system two, but he uses uh, different terminology and talks about the tortoise mind and the hare mind and um, slightly emphasizes different things where... Um, I think they're different, actually. I, I would dispute that it's the same yeah, as okay. Kahneman's, okay. but anyway. So, yeah, yeah, no, well, actually, maybe, maybe clarify just, um, just to, if I'm a bit confused. Because uh, I, I was going to say that um, the slight difference between Kahneman and Claxton is that um, Kahneman tends to stress like uh, speed, so quick reactions compared exactly. to slow, slow deliberation. And Claxton tends to emphasize more like... Um, uh, conscious focus and more open free association. Uh, and that was like, they're related because when you're consciously focusing, you're doing the slow system one thinking. Um, and when you're more free associating, you're doing arguably more system two, but you can see how, um, if I'm a Claxonite and you're a Kahnemanite, like this is a conversation that's just going to grind to a total stalemate because, uh, these are related, but they're just different metaphysical frameworks that we can use. Um, and, you can't really say that one of these is definitively right. Like we can't say Popperian lens is right and Kahneman is wrong because both of them are just expansively definable to include everything. And so, um, so while I agree with Tom that I think that it is the case that all forms of thinking are problem solving, what I mean to say is that this is a lens that I often will use to think through other problems, uh, but it's not the only lens that I will use. And so because this is a metaphysical thing, it's not a scientific thing, uh, you can't argue that it's true or false um, directly. 
You have to um, demonstrate that it's true by applying this lens to other kinds of problems and showing that when you use this lens to try to think through other kinds of problems, um, you can potentially make more progress. So it's all about using this lens as a means of making progress on other kinds of problems. So maybe, for example, um, viewing the sole purpose of problem of thinking as problem solving. Maybe if you start with that, then that is going to suggest different ways to um, run a uh, education program, say. So maybe um, if you think about uh, all of thinking as problem solving, maybe you're going to design your um, uh, class structure differently. Um, or maybe this will give you a, a different way to try to tackle the problem of depression and, and anxiety. Maybe you say, well, depression is about uh, focusing on the wrong problem. So maybe um, a, a treatment for depression could be to try to replace one kind of problem with a different kind of problem. Um, and that might work. Uh, but the evidence for this framework being superior to the other frameworks has to come in terms of the fruit it delivers when applied to other kinds of problems. And so, um, so to conclude, I would agree with Tom, but I would be very careful not to think that uh, we've solved how thinking works um, because this is just a lens and it is only valuable if it allows us to make tangible progress on other kinds of problems and maybe try to attack a um, something like uh, dealing with psychosis in, in a different way. Maybe you view psychosis as problem solving gone awry and maybe that leads you to suggest different kinds of treatments. But, uh, but that's the only way that this is valuable at all because if we just say we've solved how thinking works, it's problem solving all the way down, then you're not really doing too much. So, um, so that would be my answer to, to his question, which is yes, but remember this is a metaphysical thing. It's not a scientific thing. Uh, it's not the only metaphysical thing you can use either. Uh, so other times it might be better to think more in terms of Galef or Kahneman or Claxton um, than it is in terms of Popper. Uh, and there's no contradiction here. It's just using these different metaphysical lenses to try to make tangible concrete progress on tangible concrete problems. Nice. That was a great answer. I would just say no, mostly for the some of the last reasons you articulated, which is just that I don't see in many situations like what this sort of claim is getting us. So, you know, when I'm like watching TV very lazily after a long day or reading like just like a total fantasy book that's a nonfiction that I'm just trying to absorb and enjoy, I don't see myself solving problems in any ah. meaningful way. So you can be I think you can come up with tortured ways in which you can say, oh, you are solving problems, but I, I don't think it's valuable. Oh, I disagree with you. Or like, you know, if you're just like in a moment of bliss, like hanging out on the lawn with your friends or having sex or something like, you know, sometimes during sex, you are trying to solve problems. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, some, the entire process of having sex is me trying to figure out how to solve that problem. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> One goddamn problem yeah, after yeah, another. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why people like doing it. This is a problem yeah, after another problem. work and work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's always a way in which you can say, ah, but what you are really doing is guessing about what this character is doing in this TV show and wondering why they're doing this. And then you come up with some conjecture about why they're doing it. And then that conjecture is, you know, borne out or falsified later when they actually do or don't do it. I just find that like a totally unilluminating way to talk about watching TV. Um, and so you could try and convince me otherwise. But uh, yeah, I will absolutely try to convince you otherwise. Um so don't put yourself in the mind of the viewer, but put yourself in the mind of the person making the show, right? So if you're going to make a show that people are going to actually watch... No, but the point is I'm the viewer. That's what I, that's the no, perspective. But, <laughs> no, the point is the thing that you're viewing um, is taking advantage of the fact that you want to um, figure out what's going on and have a satisfying resolution to the story arc. So um, why the show Lost just went completely off the rails and everyone stopped viewing it is precisely because... 
they kept introducing new problem after new problem after new problem, uh, cliffhanger after cliffhanger after cliffhanger that didn't have any resolution whatsoever. And so as you're watching it, you realize that this is just a complete waste of, of time compared to uh, a show that you are actually watching, um, which mm-hmm. is a sequence of um, interesting storylines that have um, a period where you're like, oh, how's the character going to get out of this problem? And then they get out of it. Um, and so I would argue that the fact that you're watching it at all is exactly because the director knows that they have to put in a sequence of uh, problems and resolutions. And this is like all stories have this except like modernist art. And that's why most modernist stories are very difficult for people um, because they don't realize that the standard, like, like why is the, the Marvel formula so um, successful? It's so successful because we know exactly what the problem structure is going to be. Um, good guy, bad guy, bad guy has a big problem that the good guys have to solve, right? That's why it works so, so well. And if you got rid of that, if you got rid of the bad guy and you just took out all the problems, no one would watch it at all. Okay. So, but yeah. you've changed the subject. Like I'm talking about subjectively as the viewer, are you solving problems as you're watching the show? You are like, that's what watching the show is about. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Then why do people rewatch things that they've already watched? Uh, because they just, they like the other, like they know, um, they know the what's going to happen. They know the, the problem. They yeah, know well, the, the same, yeah, well, the same way that the people play video games that they've already played. It's like, sometimes it's fun. Even if you know what the yeah. solution is, it's still fun. Um, and Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but, but, but it has nothing to do with solving problems. Uh, it has ab- everything to do with solving problems in the sense that um, of the infinite number of things you could be watching, you tend to watch the things that, um, like, give me a storyline that's interesting that doesn't have a problem and a solution baked inside of it. Uh, it doesn't exist. Every movie you watch will have that. And the ones that you won't watch are precisely the ones that don't have that. Uh, because as you're passively consuming it, you're actually not passively consuming it you're continuously trying to guess how is this character going to get out of this problem and like i think the most um successful show um is uh, breaking bad and how uh, beautifully and um interestingly the um uh, gilligan has set up these problems for the main character to uh, wriggle out of and you don't know how he's going to get out of it but he somehow does and so um the fact that you are viewing it is evidence that there are interesting problems there, and that's what you're passively um, consuming. If you watch a show because you're continually conjecturing about how they're going to solve a problem, yeah. then it doesn't explain why people rewatch shows. Well, no, it's not because the only now you're, thing. Now yeah. you don't have to conjecture because it's no, it's you not know the only thing. So um, you, I, I rewatch um, stand-up comedy sometimes. I know what's going to happen. Totally, I rewatch it all the time, and that's my point. No, but my point is that um, stimulus habituation is not binary. So it's not like once you know it, then you're no longer stimulated by it. Even if you know what the solution is going to be, you will can still get something out of it. And the better the show, the more you'll get out. Um, but uh, it's not infinitely rewatchable because if you've memorized everything and then you're, you've been so habituated by the stimulus, there's no longer a stimulus, then you're going to stop, stop watching it. But, um, uh, but yeah, like the better the show, the more you can rewatch it and the more things you can discover. So like Arrested Development is another example, but you watch it like six or seven times and you keep noticing different little things. And so the first time you watch it, there's like one layer of problems. And the second time you watch it, you're seeing like a different layer of problems. And the third time you watch it, you're seeing a third layer. But if you watch a show, like, so here's, here's a, um, a challenge to you. Find me a show that you love that doesn't have problems in it. Um, 
find me that and then I will be. No, because you're just coupling, like, obviously it's going to have problems with it because that's just, that's what stimulates interest, right? Exactly. Like a a show without any, but that would just be a show where they're just sitting there doing nothing. Like that doesn't prove that what you're doing as the, you're confusing what's going on in the show with what you're doing as the viewer. You keep conflating these two things and it's like, you can't say the show, they're solving problems in the show. Therefore, as the viewer, you're solving problems. Mm -hmm. Like that's a, that's a logical leap that you you just haven't made it's, it's not logically no it, it, so when you watch a show you are putting yourself in the perspective of the antagonist the protagonist the secondary characters you're constantly imagining like what you would do if you were in that situation and then you're like oh i would um like, is I mean, that not, what you're like, doing when you're like watching seinfeld you're like pretending to be george costanza or jerry and you're wondering what you would do if you were them like it's not that's not what it feels like from yeah a, you're seeing relevancies to your own life like even when you're watching iron man it's not like oh i have the ability to shoot energy out of my abdomen. Um, but what you are saying is, uh, yeah, there are times in my life where I've been more of like the lead, like the, the hero and I've dealt with difficulties. And so you abstract away and you metaphorize. And, um, but of course, like if shows didn't like, so Paul Bloom talks about this in, um, one of his, uh, examples of why empathy is so valuable to us. Uh, it's valuable because, of uh television and entertainment like you're constantly empathizing with the characters and what does empathy mean it means put yourself in their shoes um and then you're curious to say to see like oh it, are harry and sally gonna get together like if i was harry or if i was sally what would i do and like that's part of the appeal of, of, of shows like yeah of course just, you're but you're yeah. talking about empathy and curiosity and like and that's all like if, part if of you it. Was, yeah, if, yeah, if yeah, you yeah. assume that all of these things so if you assume the conclusion of the argument which is that all thought is problem solving and then you say while you're watching tv you're thinking about things so you're solving problems <laughs> then yeah but that's just a totally circular argument but you've just nope. described to me things that you're doing while you're watching tv that have nothing to do with problem solving yeah you're empathizing it's- and you're, you know, you're laughing along with them and you're enjoying it and you're yeah. reflecting on the similarities with your own life or analogies, yeah. et cetera. You can totally describe that without problem solving. It's totally unclear to me if empathizing with something means problem solving. And this is exactly what I mean, why it's it's totally useless to describe these activities as problem solving. <laughs> Obviously, not we're, we're not, yeah, we're not yeah, going to yeah. like, we're not going to resolve this. I just, I'm just going to, yeah. I, yeah. Well, so well, the listener so, will just so, have so, to decide so, for yeah. themselves. Like when you, you know, when you're, or put, putting aside watching TV and when you're just lying yeah on a sunny grassy knoll with your friends and you're just sitting there and doing absolutely nothing not worrying about anything are you solving problems only if you're going to take that concept and torture it to such an extent that you can literally fit anything into the category of solving problems and once you've done that then solving problems just doesn't anything anymore again so my point is not that this is the um only way to view things it's that it can be a useful lens and so as an example of how it's a useful lens um I am considering the phenomenon of uh, Ben sitting and watching TV at the end of the day and asking the question, um, well, why is Ben actually watching this? Like, why, why watch TV instead of um, read a book or, or um, uh, do, do something else? And it's because the director knows that the best way to keep eyes on screen is to, um, in a subtly unconscious way, continuously deliver a set of problems and solutions. And this is what reality television producers and um, cinematographers and uh, videographers have learned is if you film people in a room for three weeks and you just present it raw, no one gives a shit at all. But what you have to do is you have to cut it and edit it in such a way that you have like a bad guy and you have like little bickerings and you have to keep putting in little tiny problems and little tiny solutions. And that's how you keep eyes on screens. Um, But then as a viewer, you don't realize that. You don't realize, oh, they've kind of just subtly planted a bunch of little problems and solutions, which is what they are doing. And that's how directors keep people watching things. Um, but they do it. So 
subtly and artistically that you don't realize it's happening. And that is an example of how um, viewing all thinking as problem solving can be a valuable lens to solve a problem where specifically the problem is how do I get someone to watch a show for longer periods of time? Um, and that's how uh, they, they do it. Uh, and then they also add attractive actors and good lighting and all this extra stuff, which of course is relevant. I'm not saying it's not relevant, but I am saying that um, I would challenge you or the viewer to find a show that they like that doesn't have problems in it. Um, uh, conversely, I can find many examples of shows that people don't like, and they don't like it precisely because the problem solution mechanism has completely broken down, like Lost, for example, or a lot of modernist stuff where you're just looking at like, or uh, existentialist stuff where you look at like a, a black and white, sad French cat talking about like how life is so hard because he's a French cat and you're watching it and you're like, what's the point of this? I don't get it. Um, and you don't get it because there's no easy problem solution to be solved. So, well, then yeah. why do some people love it? Like. Uh, some people, some yeah. People so like some it. people love it because they're deeply immersed in what existentialism is all about, and they're able to see things in this that I perhaps am not able to see. So they're trying to recognize that uh, the French cat talking about, like, I'm remembering some YouTube thing. This, I'm not just making this up. I don't remember the name of it though. Um, the French cat is actually expressing um, the existential angst in a way that is maybe more uh, acceptable to the average viewer than somebody else. And so to use uh, Popperian language, the reason why some people love it is they're aware of the problem situation. So they kind of know what the problems are that this um, piece of art is trying to convey. And so if you aren't aware of the problem situation, then you're not going to get it and you're not going to be engaged and you're not going to like it. But uh, yeah, so that's an example of a lens. Giving fruit, yeah. motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. you're just, you're conflating problem. Anyway, I, it's impossible to argue against this because you're conflating problems in the actual art itself and then saying, therefore, subjectively, what the person's doing is solving problems. And there's, it's impossible to argue against that. You're just, this is like, you're just assuming the psychology of, of the people who are watching. You say there's problems in the TV show, therefore, the person solving problems is they're watching the show. You I'm can't possibly anything. argue against yeah. that. That's exactly yeah, what you're arguing. No, you you're saying all thinking as, as... Easy to argue against. I've given you examples. So here's a way to argue against it. No. Uh, find me a popular show that has a lot of viewers that doesn't have this mechanism, and that would be a way to argue against it. Um, no, find me a reality oh show that doesn't have this baked in. Like, that's a way to argue against it. Just give me an example of a popular thing that doesn't have this in it. And that okay, is I'm going to trust the readers, yeah. the listeners, see this conflation, because yeah. obviously this is... <laughs> I'm going to listen back. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'll just take out everything that you said is inaccurate about what I said in editing. So, <laughs> um, all right. Well, hopefully everyone can see that Baden is out of his mind, but uh, we're going <laughs> to, maybe I'm psychotic we're gonna, right now. We're going to yeah. pause because he's, uh, he thinks yeah. he's won the debate and now wants to yeah. leave on a high note. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to read the rest of the questions here just to give people a sense of what's coming. Unfortunately, we got, to, I thought we were going to finish today, but unfortunately, oh, dude, we no. again didn't get yeah, through yeah, yeah. that yeah. many. So there's going to be a fourth episode coming. Okay. So, the, but the rest of the questions, are uh so there's a couple more questions by tom so tom's second question asks can any thinking take place completely independently of any certainty um explicitly acknowledged or inexplicit whatsoever and then he says or can we introduce alternative terms to certainty and confidence to describe how individuals process their convictions consent and agreement and so he's kind of riffing off here like the uh anti uh justificationism tendency of cr and there's a group of people who uh, don't like talking in terms of certainties yeah. or beliefs or anything. And so we'll talk about that a bit. And then his third question, he asks, can fallibilism, anti-authoritarianism, anti-justificationism, and critical rational rationalism overall operate effectively in the highly competitive space of sports? 
especially professional sports? Um, or is a particular amount of absolutism, et cetera, um, required to direct players, coaches, and referees? So anyway, sort of the role of epistemology in sports and trial and error, et cetera. And then we have a couple of questions by Andrew. So Andrew asks, number one, uh, any suggested methods of reading Popper or others and getting the most out of it? I'm not from a philosophy background. And although I get a lot of the books, I think there's probably ways of reading them uh, where I can invest the same time and get more return. Uh, and then his, his second question is, any other books you'd say added to your personal philosophical developments as David Deutsch and Karl Popper have? Who and why? Number three, if our best theory of how to make rapid progress comes from Popper's epistemology, should making it more widely known slash understood considered a moral imperative? If not, why? If so, thoughts? Um, and then his fourth question is, is, the emergence, is emergence the result of the interplay between physical reality and the reality of abstractions? That one took me a long time to come up with an answer to, but I think I have a good answer to that one. Um, but we'll, we'll oh, see interesting. what you're saying. Yeah, nice. yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so then the final two questions, the first from from Alex, he asks, um, he gives an extract uh, by David Deutsch, which I'm not going to read, but then he asks, it's sort of about anti-rational memes, uh, and then he asks, are you aware of general types of insidious anti-rational memes, which are hard to recognize as such? Any ideas on how we can go about recognizing them in our own thinking? Uh, and then he says, I do realize that perhaps no general method exists, but still, if you have any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Uh and then the final question by Lorkin, he asks uh, sort of question out of left field about e-fuels. So this is going yeah. back to some of our episodes on climate change. And I guess we didn't discuss e-fuels. So he links uh, an interesting video that are complaining about e-fuels and then asks if we agree. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so we'll have some thoughts there. Yeah, to, to foreshadow, sorry, Lorkin, I think I agree with the videos. You, you do, that's don't. so yeah, funny yeah, you yeah, said yeah, that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I saw that video. I'm like, I think that that video is right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I read some yeah, articles, yeah. and I think I'm basically on the side of that on that video with yeah, some yeah, yeah. with some caveats with some yeah, caveats. Yeah. But um, well, so Lorcan, just for the audience, so Lorcan's like a, an old friend of mine. Um, sorry, he's a young friend of mine who I've known for a long time, who works at uh, Toyota now in um, in Tokyo, and uh, and so maybe Toyota's developing just some super crazy new e fuel that uh, will change the market, but. I am very skeptical about e-fuels, biofuels, all this alternative alternative um, forms of energy, because mm -hmm. usually they don't result in anything. But we'll go into that. Cool, man. Well, um, that was so much fun. Uh, hopefully, fuck, we have so many yeah. questions left. Yeah, uh, dude, this is gonna be like a five part series. Oh so we'll have to God. do an AUA every like six years. How many fucking questions did we answer that yeah. time? Like, like I two, think only like three or four. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Good. We got, uh, we got sidetracked. Okay. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, awesome. Yeah, fun episode. I'm going to go in the sun and uh, let's pick this up very soon. Nice, dude.